All right, I did it again. You know, if you put a 9-volt battery in your pocket with your keys, in about 20 minutes, your pocket is so hot you can barely stand it. And, and that's at least the second time that I have done this, because I thought, well, I need an extra battery, so I put it in my pocket, and then it hits my keys, and, and the battery is still hot from that, okay? So don't make any jokes about hot pants or anything like that, okay? All right. Mm-hmm. Now I can turn on the recording. Open your Bibles to the book of Jonah with me. Now we're going to take a couple weeks and look at the people that God visits. Now every once in a while you get somebody uh, in Scripture that God comes and and basically visits and and says to go and do something or says, I've got something for you. Uh, And this is one of those people. Um, Now I, I just love Jonah. Um, Jonah's easy to pick on. Uh, Jonah looks a lot like us sometimes. Um, Jonah's right after Obadiah. Of course, Obadiah is maybe one page in your Bible, so that's maybe no help. Uh, right after Amos. You all know where Amos is. Maybe you blanked out Amos. You don't like Amos, okay? Now, and, and we'll, we'll get to what we're going to read in, in just a few moments. Um, so we better pray before we go any further. Uh, Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit upon us, that we might have understanding of your word, that, that it might penetrate us, that we may be able to hear your voice and see and know what you call us to do. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Now, with a Christian life, there are certain expectations. Okay? You know that when the Lord comes and saves you, he saves you for a purpose. Okay, and that is one of those purposes is his glory. Okay, there are other purposes involved in salvation. Uh, some of those purposes are that you will do his will and his work, that you will be the instrument uh, of the proclamation of the gospel in this world. So sooner or later you have to put up that, yes, I am a Christian and I'm going to live this way, or you better shut up and just say, no, I'm, I'm not. Okay? You can't, on the one hand, say the Lord is great and powerful and all-knowing and he's ever-present and he's just got everything in the world and he's merciful and his son is the only means of salvation, while on the other hand, say, but I I just don't feel any great overwhelming um, movement in my life really to tell anybody about it or to go out of my way and and, and, uh, let anybody know about it. Uh, Certainly, if they ask me, If they come to me and ask me specifically, well, I'll tell them a little bit, but really, I'll invite them to church and I'll give them Randy's number. Because Randy's a a professional and he can do it. No, no, sorry. That's just not quite the way it works. If we think of people with great faith who are excited about their faith, we often think of missionaries who are going to leave everything here in this world that they have and go off. I mean... uh, you know, I know a lot of missionaries, uh, personal friends, uh, Judy's sister and, and her husband were missionaries in Mexico for many years. Missionaries are just a different type of person. They are a person that really hears the voice of the Lord and goes. Uh, Dan and I were at, at uh, our Presbyterian meeting uh, last week and there was a couple who are going to Lebanon as missionaries. And they went on an exploratory visit, and they said, we would have stayed in Lebanon, except we left our kids at home uh, with the mother-in-law, so we, had to, we know we had to come back. They're just dying to get to Lebanon, okay, because the place is ripe for harvest. 
There are many people there who need to hear the gospel. And that's the kind of people that you expect in missionaries. Now, now perhaps some of the famous, most famous missionaries uh, that, that have ever come around were known as the Cambridge Seven. Anybody heard of the Cambridge Seven? Maybe they're not that famous. Um, uh, the Cambridge Seven all came to Christ at Cambridge University in 1885. Okay? And they set the missionary world on fire. They were some of the best and the brightest at Cambridge at that time. C.T. Studd, and, and I love this guy's name, Montague Harry Proctor Bocamp. Okay? How'd you like to... Never mind. Stanley Smith, Arthur Polehill Turner, Dixon Host, Cecil Polehill Turner, William Wharton Castles. Okay? And literally, they did, the secular media said, they have set the missionary world on fire because they all came to Christ and said, we're all going to China for the China Inland Mission okay? at the late 1800s. And really, they raised the China In- Inland Inland Mission from, from obscurity to almost, as, as uh, Hudson Taylor said, almost embarrassing pre- preeminence in the missionary world. Okay? They helped inspire uh, an entire generation in England to leave all that they knew and to go and take the gospel into the world. When they went to China, there were 163 missionaries there. Fifteen years later, there were 800 Protestant missionaries in China, fully one-third of all Protestant missions in the world were focused on China at that time, and that's where the bodies were. And these guys went on in in various places. Uh, Some of them stayed in China all their lives. Some were interned when the Japanese invaded. Uh, Some grew ill and came back and enabled others to go to China. It's just a fabulous thing. If you have time, just go and, and look up Cambridge 7 online, and you'll be able to find out all about them. Now, Scripture is just full of verses that inspire people like that. Okay? Look on the fields. There are white, all ready to harvest. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into his harvest. The gospel will be preached into the end of the earth, and then the end will come. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Repentance is to be preached among all nations. Acts 1, you shall receive power from the Holy Spirit, after the Holy Spirit has come, and you shall be a witness. Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. These are great texts which inspire us, cause us to act on what the Lord has already done in our lives, and we go about telling others of those things. But the guy that we are looking at today is perhaps the world's worst missionary. He's not listed in Hebrews 11. Okay, in the great hall of faith, you would think somebody who's been through all that he did would would get a listing. He doesn't even get a mention, okay? And in fact, in John chapter 7, um, the Pharisees go, well, no no, uh, prophet has ever come out of Galilee. Well, they forget about this guy. Because he is so far down the list, okay? But he did come out of Galilee, and our guy, of course, is Jonah. He is the, uh, how do you want to call it, the reluctant missionary? I, I don't know. Maybe he's the best illustration of a man who, who did exactly what he wasn't supposed to, 
who refused to do what God called him to do, was finally convinced to do what God told him to do, was incredibly successful at doing what God told him to do, hated every minute of it, and hated the results of what he did. He was disobedient, he was selfish, he was sinful, he was obstinate, he had a bad disposition, and he was prejudiced. But yet, he is the guy the Lord visited and told to go and tell. Now, how many of us fit this description? Not, not the go and tell, but the obstinate, the, the selfish, that, that description. Uh, yeah. Now, we don't know much about Jonah other than what, what is written in his book and also a, l- a little reference in 2 Kings. He was a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II. Okay? In the, and that puts him in the northern kingdom. That's the kingdom of Israel. Puts him somewhere between 800 and 750 B.C. And during that time, Israel's really prospering. It's a good time under uh, Jeroboam. But Israel had been subject to these um, uh, raids from the Assyrians. Okay? And the Assyrians were a growing power, and they were a particularly nasty people. Uh, and they were raiding Israel every now and then. And there, therefore, there was this building animosity between Israel and the Assyrians. And just so you understand, the capital of the Assyrian Empire at that time was where? Is Nineveh. Okay, just keep that in mind. Israel already has a problem with Gentiles. Okay, that's everybody who's not in the covenant community. Everybody who's not Jewish. Okay, they were somewhat nationalistic at this time. Uh, even to the point that they, they were anti-Gentile, anti-Gentile. They had completely ceased to be a witness to the nations. Remember in Genesis 12, Abraham is blessed so he can what? Be a blessing. Okay? That's that part about if you get this blessing from the Lord and there was this, this great uh, outpouring upon his people, are they supposed to keep it to themselves? Well, they were God's chosen people, but they were to demonstrate it, to live it out. Others were to be blessed because the Lord had been blessing them. But instead, they became isolationists. They became the antithesis of what really what the Lord wanted. And he wanted them to demonstrate the things of, of, of his power and authority in their lives, but yet they kept it to themselves. So at this particular time in history, out of the northern kingdom, out of the area of Galilee, comes this guy named Jonah, okay? And the word of the Lord comes to him, and it comes to him in three verbs. Get up, go, preach. The Lord comes to him and says, get up, go, and preach. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, cry against it, for his wickedness has come up before me. Now, this is a very, very direct commissioning. I don't know if anybody here has received the same commission. Um, it may come to you in some form, like, I, I just have to go and talk to somebody. I, I have to go talk to this particular person. I don't know what it is, but I, just, I feel compelled I must go. Perhaps that is the prompting of the Spirit. And for you to ignore that would be shame on you, okay? Uh, shame on you. Well, same thing here with Jonah. Now, it says that uh, towards the end of the book of Jonah, it says that there were 120,000 in Nineveh who did not know their right hand from their left hand. Now, we can take that in two different ways. One way is that um, uh, they were 
physically very young, even babes, so they, they didn't know their right hand from their left hand. I don't know when that comes, maybe four or five years old, and it says there were 120,000 of them. If we take it to mean that, that means the population of Nineveh may have been five or 600,000, that there's 120,000 babes who don't know their right from their left. But another way to take it is spiritually, that they don't know their right hand from their left hand, spiritually speaking. And, uh, you know, the scholars go back and forth about whether there was 120,000 at Nineveh or whether there was actually 500,000 within Nineveh and the surrounding area. Okay? But the city is advanced as much as possible for that period in time. It's in list, kind of rest in the Mesopotamian Valley, that the people were uh, arrogant. They were proud of their achievements. I mean, Nineveh is a big place. Okay? It is a big, uh, technically advanced place, but yet they were sinking into immorality, debauchery. Um, the prophet Nahum lists them as uh, Nineveh as a bloody city full of lies, Fraud, robbery, sexuality, violence, witchcraft, idolatry. This is a bad place, okay? And the soldiers were famous for their brutality. If they would come and conquer you, often they would skin the captives alive. Okay? So, nasty group of people. So, Jonah, chapter 1. And we'll just read the... Just, we're not going to read all of Jonah. I'm just going to pick and choose so we understand what Jonah's here, what, what he's doing here. Verse 1, chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So what do you see listed twice in verse 3. Jonah wants to flee from the presence of the Lord. Okay, So it's not as if he just doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He wants to attempt to get away from the Lord. Now, what did we learn in, uh, from our study of Psalm 139? The Lord is everywhere. He knows everything. Okay, And it's not as if Jonah is uh, somehow out of the Lord's sight as he sneaks down to Jaffa and attempts to go to Tarshish. Now, just so remember your geography, Tarshish is over there and Nineveh is over there, okay? So Jonah wants not only to flee from Nineveh, he wants to flee from the Lord, and the Lord will never see me over here in this little part of the world, okay? Well, why did he run away from the commissioning of the Lord? I mean, how many of us would love and this is dangerous, would love to hear from the Lord in an audible voice, go and do this. Well, once you hear that, what, what, what happens? Well, you're obligated to go and do that. I mean, if the Lord comes to you and says, if he comes to me and says, Randy, this is what I want you to do, and it's so clear, and it is crystal clear, what do I do? I get on the ship and I go to Tarshish, because, man, that's hard. I mean, I understand Jonah does not want to go to Nineveh. Why? Because he's anti-Gentile. Those people are nasty people. And if I go there and do what the Lord says, what's going to happen? Turn over to chapter 4 of Jonah. He says, if I go there, 
and preach to the Ninevites. Chapter 4, verse 2. He prayed to the Lord, said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. I don't want to go and tell those people to repent, because if I do, what's going to happen? They're going to repent, and God's going to be gracious, and he's not going to punish them. And you know what the Ninevites are like? Man, they're nasty people. And God, I didn't want to go and take your message to them. Why? Because they're not like me. I don't particularly like them. They're not part of the covenant people. And you will be gracious to them if they hear the message of your love and care. And he says, I'm not going to do it. Because I know the outcome. And the outcome is going to be good for them. And I don't want it to be good for them. Hmm. I ran away because I knew you'd be gracious. I was afraid that if I went, you'd show those stinking Gentiles mercy and compassion. We can't have that. And if there's anything I can't stand, it's having to go to people who aren't like me and whom I don't like and telling them the good news of salvation. I mean, just think of it. Isn't that crazy? None of us would do that, right? He's afraid the people would repent. He was afraid God's grace would be manifest in their lives. Jonah rightly deduced that there would be conversion. That there would be repentance. I'm here to tell you that we are so much smarter than Jonah. Okay? Now when the Lord tells me to go, well, I, I don't waste a second debating who those people are, uh, what they're like, what, what I like about them, what I don't like, even if they look like me or sound like me. I mean, when the Lord says, Randy, I want you to go and take the gospel to that group of people that lives three blocks from you or two miles from you or whatever it is, well, I'm, I'm, I'm on it like right now, right? Well, the good thing is God's never told me that, okay? He's never commanded me to go and take the gospel to anybody that I don't like, that doesn't look like me, that doesn't sound like me, that I wouldn't like to have sitting next to me in the pew on Sunday morning. And I am under no obligation, in my view, to do such a thing, right? Well, you know I'm joking. (laughs) Because we are. We are under this great obligation, but it is not an obligation of oppression, it is an obligation of joy. I mean, uh, we, we were talking earlier today and, and how uh, Presbyterians, and, and not so much today, there is a small, very small group, but Reformed believers in general believe that God does the saving. I mean, that's Reformed theology. But who does he use to communicate the saving message? It's us. Now, some of us can go back and we sit there, well, God will save them when he is good and ready and doesn't require anything from me. Well, that's what is affectionately known as hyper-Calvinism, which is bad, okay? Because it takes me out of the equation. God is gracious enough to use us to communicate the gospel to those who need to hear it. When he says, go and tell, that's because he's got a plan for you to take the gospel to somebody because they need to hear it. And he has chosen you as the instrument. Jonah is a chosen instrument of the Lord. And he says, there's no way I'm going to those people over there and give them the gospel. Because I don't like them. 
How many of us have been or are now on our own ship to Tarshish? Where the Lord has said, I've got a plan for you. This is what I want you to do. And we're on the ship to Tarshish. Now our ship might be, I'm way too busy in my life to do that. Work is piling up and I cannot even contemplate that, Lord. Oh, the kids are like this or, or I'm not gifted in that way, but yet you feel this calling over here. And, 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 and you're on the ship to Tarshish trying to get away from what the Lord wants you to do just as fast as you can. But we know that's an impossibility. Let's keep reading. Jonah 1, verse 4. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. Now that is the same word that is used for, you know, like, like hurling a thunderbolt or something like that. It's as if the Lord threw onto the sea this big storm. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea and lightened it for them. But Jonah had gone down below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. The guiltless sleep of the disobedient here, apparently. You know, he just gets down to sleep, maybe he's just blocked it out. So the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God, perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so we may learn. Now, here are pagans, non-believers coming to Jonah and saying, Get up and call on your God. They don't know anything about the God of Jonah yet. Because our gods, apparently they're not hearing us. Maybe it's your God. And what does Jonah do? It doesn't say anything. I mean, really, do you want to be, you're running from the God who is creating a storm big enough to almost destroy this boat. It's on the precipice of destroying this boat. Do you really want to tell all the other people on that boat that you're the cause of that? Because you're running away from the God who's big enough and strong enough and powerful enough to create this storm. You're running away from his command in your life. No, Jonah doesn't want to say that. (laughs) And each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and purely by chance it fell on Jonah, right? No. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck What is your occupation, and where do you come from, and what is your country, from what people are you? Now, the crew confronts Jonah, and if he had a brain in his head, he would have gone down below, gotten on his knees, and repented before the Lord. And said, Lord, I have been disobedient, I have been belligerent, I am prejudiced, I am self-willed. Uh, I admit it, please forgive me. Stop the storm, get us to a port, I'll get off on the, at that port and head right out to Nineveh. But what does he do? Jonah apparently still needs convincing. Verse 9, he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So he doesn't say 
that he's been disobedient, but he does say, I fear this, Lord. Then the men came, became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And then he said to them, I would rather die than be obedient to the Lord. You know, pick me up, throw me into the sea. I mean, they are way out. It's not as if some of the more liberal commentators have said, well, they threw him into the sea and the dinghy of the boat was called the whale. So when he landed in the sea, he actually landed in the dinghy and he spent three days in the dinghy. They just wanted to get him off the ship. That's really convoluted. You really have to work the language to do that. And, and it's no good, okay? Pick me up, throw me into the sea, because I'd rather die than be obedient to the Lord. For the sea will become calm, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men didn't, they weren't going to sacrifice Jonah. They didn't believe that. They rode desperately to return to the land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord. Who, who called on the Lord? The crew did. Do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For thou, O Lord, hast done as thou hast pleased. God is greater than our disobedience. Think on that one. God is greater than our disobedience. So we know what we know what happens. Verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. It's not hard for God to do that kind of thing. If he can create out of nothing, he certainly can create a fish. He certainly can create a fish. And what kind of fish was this? We determined last week, I think. It was a big honking fish, okay? Now, there is some that I don't know whether it's an urban legend or it's a reality or whether it's a story that's grown over the years, there's a guy named James Bartley, James Bartley, who was a whaler uh, back in the late 1800s. And as he was out whaling, uh, a big sperm whale came along and hit, the sh- hit his boat. He fell out and was consumed by the sperm whale. Well, his friends caught that whale. They thought he was gone put the whale alongside and began to process the sperm whale. And when they opened him up, they found James Bartley inside the whale. And he had been there about, they figure, 15 or 16 hours. So he came out of the whale all kind of splotchy uh, from uh, all those great gastric juices that went on inside the whale. Uh, They said he lived about 10 or 11 more years, was blind because of the experience. And on his tombstone says James Bartley, a modern-day Jonah. Now, whether that's true, legend, urban legend, I really don't know. But the question really is, can God create a whale that a man could survive in for three days? Well, yeah, he can create a big honking fish to do anything that he wants. Now, imagine you're this fish. And here you have inside of you this disobedient prophet of the Lord. What do you want to do to him? You know, you can only stand three days of him. Okay, so along he comes, in three days he vomits him out. 
Okay, vomits him out. Now, most of the time in Scripture, vomiting is a bad thing. Um, we see that, uh, gee, I don't want to talk too much about it, but uh, the Lord threatens to spew Israel out of the land, vomit. Laodicea is warned about being lukewarm because if you're lukewarm, I'm going to what? Vomit you out of my mouth. That's for, for everybody who's had an infant, you understand this word. It is projectile vomit out of you, out of my mouth. Proverbs, as a fool continue in his folly, so does a dog return to its vomit. Okay? The only good vomiting that I could find in Scripture is the vomiting of this big honking fish of Jonah out. Because he couldn't take it anymore. I, I know the Lord had ordained the day that he would spew him out. It just happens to be three days. I mean, that's why Jesus said, oh, this is a good illustration. I'll use Jonah about my three days, right? No. These things just don't happen. These things just don't happen. Turn to chapter 3 of Jonah. The guy whom the Lord visited and told to go and tell... The guy that doesn't want to be used by God, but has already been used by God because there's been some sort of revival on that boat, right? The crew called out to the Lord. Okay, So I know that you're on your your own ship to Tarshish. There are non-believers on that ship where you are. If you're running away from what the Lord wants you to do, there's still going to be work for you to do on that ship until you come to the realization that you can't run away from what the Lord calls you to do. Chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days walk. Then Jonah began to walk through the city, one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Is this the best sermon you ever heard? I mean, Jonas. Jonas, okay? Apparently it was. The word destroyed here is the same word that's used for Sodom and Gomorrah. Destroyed in that way. Now, if we wanted to pick a city in our country, which city would you walk through and say, repent for in 40 days the Lord's going to destroy you? Which one? Yeah, I'll do, like, get a list, okay? <laughs> oh, I, yeah. I mean, how bad could Nineveh have been? What place in our country could you go and see these same things? Uh, don't worry, it comes to you on your television. You don't have to worry about it, okay? How many of you watch the Grammys? Nobody wants to admit it to some. There were some Grammy watchers, okay? Now, I did not watch the Grammys. But I, I read the reviews of the Grammys, and you had, you had people emulating witches and e- emulating demonic activity. You had, um, I've I got to get it right, okay, um, mass marriage of 33 straight and gay couples while two rappers sang same love. Words that should have been bleeped out that didn't make it, costumes that cover so little and reveal so much, Okay. Now, could you have gone to Hollywood and, and declared the same sermon? Well, if the Lord called you to go and do it, okay? Now, that's just, that, but that's way out there, right? That's the West Coast. Isn't that where, yeah, it's the West Coast. Okay, 
and, and I don't want to degrade the West Coast, but that's where all the fruit and nuts go, right? <laughs> Sorry. Not like us in the South, because we are in the Bible Belt, and we know what the Word of God is, and our lives demonstrate the things of God, what? Sort of, okay? <laughs> sort of. Some days we do, some days we don't. Here is the mightiest, the mightiest of Old Testament revivals. The greatest single missionary effort is made by a guy who doesn't want to do it, who doesn't like the results, in fact, who hates doing it, and and wants to kill himself afterwards because God has been gracious to people he doesn't like. So the people of Nineveh believed. Verse 5, then the people of Nineveh believed in God. They just go, didn't go, well, I, I believe what Jonah's saying. Okay, that, that's kind of an intellectual ascension to what he was saying. No, this is not just intellectual, it is an entire, it, it, it encompasses their entire being. They believed in God because they heard the message. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles... It doesn't say that Jonah went and visited the king. It just said word reaches the king. Do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. I just love that. Okay? Put sackcloth on your cow. And it's not just as if it would really bother the cow. It is a sign of our complete and total repentance. Okay? Not only is it us, but it's everything that we're about. They believed In God, they committed themselves to the God who had given them this message through the guy who didn't want to tell them. Now, for us, I want you to remember, if you're on the ship going to Tarshish, God always gives the saint another another chance. Okay, It's not too late to, to recognize that God has his hand on you, and he he's called you to something, no matter how hard you're running from it. The lesson of grace is that he's going to have his way, and he's going to give you that chance, and he's going to call you to that work. You study the lives of the men of the Old Testament in particular, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Elijah, David, even in the New Testament, Peter. These guys all got second, third chances. The Lord was working in them, shaping them. They had to learn. They made mistakes. David made some big honking mistakes, but yet he was a man after God's own heart. These men who were known sometimes as much for their sins as for their righteousness knew what it was to have a God who gives them a second chance. So if you feel that you've wrecked your life as a Christian and, and you think, oh, God can never use me, okay? I've thrown it all away. I mean, I'm just, I'm just hanging on with my fingernails. No, God's got a plan. He's got something for you to do. If you're on the ship to Tarshish, God is a God who offers you another chance. And perhaps like Jonah, the outcome of when you are obedient may be more than you can ever dream or imagine. So let's pray.
Lord, who are we that we don't deserve the first chance, let alone a second and a third. But you have determined that you will call us by name and draw us unto yourself, that we might know your graciousness. Lord, for those of us who are believers today, remind us that there are things that you have for us to do. There's no sense running away from it. When we are convinced, when we are moved by the Holy Spirit, we need to to do them and watch you work. And Lord, if if there are people here who, who do not believe these things today, that they would understand that they're here today because the Lord has something for them. The Lord has a message of mercy and grace and compassion. That same message for the city of Nineveh. That's the message for them. That God is gracious. That his love is beyond anything that we can comprehend or imagine. That in the midst of our despair, in the midst of running away from him, he comes and he grabs hold of us. That we might believe in him. Lord, we pray that you would visit us today with these truths and that we would live them out. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.